0: All right, I want to start off with this quote today. Here's the quote. Always let your conscience be your guide. Who knows who said that? Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket. Watch this. Yes. Jiminy Cricket. Man, the yellow looks terrible on that wall. Jiminy Cricket. Yes. We live in a day where our autonomous, conscious, Thought is overlord, our conscience being our inner feelings, our sovereign voices as guides to the rightness and wrongness of one's actions and one's belief. You can take it down. It's creeping me out. You can take it down. (laughs) Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote in the 17th century, he said, the conscience is the soul reflecting upon itself. Or theologian J.R. Packer says, to personify conscience and treat it as God's watchman and spokesman in the soul is not therefore a mere flight of fantasy; it is a necessity of human experience. You see, the conscience is at the heart of what distinguishes human creatures, unlike animals, or unlike plants, or unlike delicious blue cheese, or whatever it is. We we contemplate our actions and our moral self-evaluations. Thus, with our conscience, we we vote. With our conscience, we we give. With Through our conscience, we respond. We interpret our worlds and so on. Now, I just want everybody to know I'm not digging on our conscience. I have no issues with our conscience. I care about all of your own little Jiminy Crickets, right? And it's important role in our lives. But I do want to pose the question today, what happens if we ignore Jiminy Cricket? What happens if we shun our conscience? In 1984, there, there was an airline jet which crashed into, or, or excuse me, crashed in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made an extremely eerie discovery. They came across the black box, and it revealed to them several minutes before impact that there was a shrill, automated voice from the plane's warning system, which repeated in English, which repeated in English, Jack, can we get some more chairs? That'd be great. Thanks, buddy. Which repeated in English... Pull up, pull up, pull up. And it said it over and over and over. Pull up. The pilot, not speaking English, evidently, assuming that the system was malfunctioning, actually has recorded on the black box this, and I'm not joking around, and I think it's amazing. You can hear the pilot say, shut up, gringo. And is kept pronouncing, shut up, gringo, shut up, gringo, over and over and over, and switch the system off. And sadly, within minutes, Everybody on board tragically lost their life. See, when we violate our Jiminy Crickets, our conscience, its natural tendency is to produce tragedy. Our conscience then produces tragedy, thus showing us that even though God can use our conscience, it is not his voice. It is not his voice. It is human faculty that judges our actions and thoughts by our known standards. So hear me, if violated, that little cricket invites intruders of shame, anguish, regret, anxiety, disgrace, and guilt. Now, we get this. We've all heard the sayings or used the phrase, I have a guilty conscience. Spiritually what this does, though, is it infects us with the notion that we are unacceptable to God. Our conscience whispers that he doesn't want you. And so no amount of self-injury or a donation to a charity or hours served at a soup kitchen or hours spent reading the Bible or saying prayers will resolve the feelings of guilt, condemnation, or alienation. So then, what can we do? Because all of us here at one point or another have violated our conscience. So what can we do to reduce that guilty conscience? Well... I have to share this with you because it blew my mind. In the original tale of Pinocchio in the 1800s, Pinocchio actually killed the cricket. And I'm just going to read it because it's so disturbing. You're going to love it. This is what it says. <laughs> Hopefully I have it. Do we have it? Oh, yes, good. At these last words, Pinocchio jumped up in a fury, took a hammer from the bench, and threw with all the strength at the talking cricket. This is so good. <laughs> Perhaps he did not think he would strike it. But, sad to relate, my dear children, he did hit the cricket straight on the head. With that last weak... Crick, crick, (laughs) crick. The poor cricket fell from the wall dead. Oh, it's... Whatever. You guys are fine. You're fine. It's make-believe. But, (laughs) while we have no hammer to throw at our conscience... The stranger, that's who we affectionately call the author of the book of Hebrews because he's so unknown, the stranger offers a different cure other than hammers to a dirty conscience, a defiled spirit, a stained soul, or a wayward heart. So if you want the cure, here it is. Get your journals out. Get ready to write it down. Pens. AJ, you ready? Yeah. <laughs> here it is. I'm going to tell you. This is what he offers. Hebrews reminds us of furniture. The offer, what he says, a solution. He goes, Hebrews 9, and he spends 10 verses talking about furniture. Mm. Yes and amen. Oh, The author of, if you guys notice, we just read it, and that was the whole point so we can see it up in front of us. He's like walking up and down the aisles of Ikea. He's talking about regulations of worship. He's talking about curtains. He's talking about urns and chairs and lampstands. Now, from the outside in, if you're kicking yourself for being here instead of watching the World Cup, I get it. This sounds bu, bu, boring. I get it. And if you're visiting thinking it's nap time as we spend the next four hours, today's going to be four hours, talking about furniture, I also get it. But I will be honest. If that is our immediate assessment, that's just to see the wardrobe and not the world which lives beyond its doors. Friends, as lost as we can be in the unrelevant weeds of this incredibly overwhelming book, covenants and oaths and high priests and rituals and and furniture, here's the point. Here's the point. The most basic need of the human heart remains unchanged from then to now. The stranger says, Remember the tabernacle, remember its furniture. Because when the tabernacle was erected, the most fundamental problem of the human heart is the same today as then, or same then as it is today in this room. So during the uh, the nation of Israel's wandering from slavery to the promised land, God established what's called the tabernacle. That is a temporary dwelling space which would last for centuries. Imagine a worship pop-up shop. It was a mobile tent of sorts. And because Hebrews 9 decides to do a long laundry list of its, of its furniture, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at the furniture, trying to wrap our heads around it. And I hope you're amped because I have pictures. Who's excited for pictures? Forrest? These pictures took me a long time. So first, I want everybody to get a good idea of the tabernacle. Here it is. I drew this. No, I didn't. I lied. I didn't draw this. So everybody, this is what it would look like, and all of the tribes, all of the camps would camp around this tabernacle. It was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, and it was made of wood but overlaid with gold. This entire structure was covered in four layers of cloth and skin. And you see there in its courtyard, that is its courtyard. It has two main pieces, that being the altar. Can we bring the altar up? This is the altar. This is where animal, animals were sacrificed outside. It probably tasted like barbecue or smelled like barbecue. Like this was animals cooking all the time, smoky, gnarly. Now go to the labor. This, is it up there? Good. This was the washing basin located from the altar to the entrance where priests would clean themselves before they went in. Okay? So then as you enter into the holy room, to the holy place, to the holy room, like I said, there you'd find then the table of shewbread. We have the table? Yes. This is the table of shrewbread. Twelve loaves. Because God's a hungry guy. There's twelve loaves there. Twelve for the tribes. You get it. But obviously, God wouldn't eat this. It's symbolic. The bread was in there so that people would remember that God has given to them. That God continues to provide for them. Next, the lampstand. Does this look familiar? This is probably one of the most familiar Jewish symbols we know as Gentiles. Un-Jewish people. This was lit day and night as God's continual presence. It was a reminder. But its unique design was supposed to look like the tree of life that was in the garden. So that's why it looks like that. Bryce nodded his head like he gets it. He was interested. Yes, we connected with one person with furniture today. Next, the incense. Watch this. Yes! Did you see the timing? (laughs) Ross. Gosh. Gosh. So they'd be burning incense. It probably smelled like a vintage clothing store. Tons of incense and tons of sage. It stood right in front of the most holy room and it represented two things. Another thing standing between them and God and at the same time, and this is very, very important to know at the same time, but this was the smelling or the understanding that our prayers are like a smelling aroma to God. So we have a courtyard, we have a room, Called the most, ho- or called the holy room, the outer room, and I want everybody to know that we have not gone yet into the most inner room, or the most holy of holy rooms, or the holy place, however you want to call it. We have not walked into that yet. That's important to know because in just a few minutes, it's going to be revelatory for Hebrews chapter nine. So we go from courtyard, outer room, and now we're going into the most holy room. Also, can everybody just bear with me and think how amazing that is? There's the holy room and the most holy room. I just want to be in the boardroom where somebody came up with that idea. Don't you? So we have the holy room, and then we have this more holy room. And you just know Phil down at the end is like, guys, I got an idea. What we could, never, does a stupid joke, but get it. So in the whole, most holy room, behind the veil, behind this curtain, and the curtain was translated literally mean to be shut off. It was very thick, about four inches thick, and it was woven of 72 cords. That's about 24 strands. And each one of the colors on this curtain had symbolic meaning. Blue represented creation, purple represented royalty, and crimson represented sin. Hence, as you worshipped in there, you were supposed to reflect on God's creation, God's kingship, and God's handling of man's rebellion. Everything in this tabernacle, everything in this mobile tent had meaning. Everything was symbolic. Everything meant something. Even as you would walk through, the courtyard was made of all this beautiful copper. The holy room was made of all this silver. And as you walked into the most holies of room, everything was gold. So as you get more and more closer to the presence of God, the metal would become more and more expensive, more and more valuable. And there, in the holy of holies, is the Ark of the Covenant. Who immediately thinks of Indiana Jones? Right? Who's imagining people's face melting? Like, that is the Ark of the Covenant. That is so biblical. Not really. Just so you know. That does not, I want you guys to remove that from your minds. But the Ark of the Covenant, the actual real Ark of the Covenant, was covered with gold. And in it, there's three things. There's three things in the Ark of the Covenant. The old golden urn, which contained Samana, had Aaron's staff because of, of his priesthood. And the tablets of stone, which the Ten Commandments were on. Then I want everybody to notice you see the angels on top, the cherubim. This should bring back imagery or significance of the Garden of Eden, when man was kicked in paradise. When man was kicked out, and paradise was lost. The cherubim, which guarded the entrance with swords, but here we have two cherubim, but we don't see any swords. What does that mean? It means this is the idea, this is the notion, or the desire to return to primal paradise, which is God's presence. So between the lampstand designed, like the tree of life, the cherubim, hopefully we're starting to see that this has such immense Garden of Eden imagery. Remember, much of Hebrews is written with Genesis, in fact, for what it's worth, 17th century Dutch theologian wants to connect this even more for us. Look at this amazing quote from Herman. (laughs) He says this, and I love it. He says, God created the whole world in six days, but he used 40 to instruct Moses about the tabernacle. Little over one chapter was needed to describe the structure of the world, but six were used for the tabernacle. Clearly, the Holy Spirit wants us to notice that the tabernacle was extremely important to the faith. Friends, again, this is what we must uproot from the soil of these pages. That this tabernacle was God's earthly address so that man, you and I, they, could find him. Another way you could talk about the tabernacle is by saying, God accessible. Isn't that all what we want? God is accessible. God with us. That actually being the burning question, dare I say, that's still the burning question to, to us to now to this room. That question being Exodus 17, before the tabernacle was constructed, this is what it says. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is he here or is he not? Collective church, is this not the question we ask ourselves in every moment of distress or doubt? Is God here? Does God care? Most, if not all, have asked that question. Some are asking even today, wondering, is God with me or is God alienated because of me? Now, I think it's subtle, but this is the wrong way to ask the question, to think upon his presence. A question that would change the way we perceive and practice this life isn't, but God, are you here? It should be, but God, where can you be found? Loss of a job to a loss of a loved one, what we should be asking is, where is Jesus in this? Crappy marriage fight to hard night raising kids or whatever, where can Jesus be found in this? Not, God, are you here? It's the question which preaches a message to our own hearts versus the idea that, God, I know you're here, give me eyes to see. And we can only have that type of confidence because it starts with tabernacle realities. Now, I hope we all get this that when we talk about the tabernacle, this was not for God. When you read all of the Old Testament and it's going in these long lengths to talk about the tabernacle, the idea isn't like, this is what I want. God's like, I want a tent. The tabernacle was not for God, it was for man, it was for you. We understand that God can be experienced and known everywhere, but God knows there are times and there are places that are easier for us to encounter him. God knew that. So thus he established the tabernacle. God accessible, God approachable, God with us, God found. And God answers his burning question by saying in Exodus 25, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God wants his people to know, while invisible to the human eye, I am not distant. While you may not see me, while you may not feel me, I am not remote. He doesn't say, I'm among them. God says, I am in their very midst. What an important note for us as a church. Some of you are visitors. We'll never see you again, and that's okay. But most of you are here. And it's so important for us to know it's like, God is is God doing anything here amongst us? Is anything happening? Where are we going? God, where are you? I think it's important for us to know that even though we can't sense him or necessarily see him, that he is not distant. He is in our very midst. I hope we believe that about our daily lives. That God wants interaction, that God wants involvement that God wants to be in your center, that this holy God makes a way to be in our midst if you'll have him. I heard an old tale about a rabbi asking his followers very challenging questions. One time he gets up in front of him and he asks, where does God exist? His followers being extremely confused, that sounded heretical, what are you talking about? They do one of these, God exists everywhere? And the rabbi looked at him and he goes, Wrong! Wrong! The rabbi shouting, he says, He exists wherever man lets him in. Now, whether you believe that little story or not, God wants to be in our midst. God wants to be with you. And I think, collective church, that terrifies the crap out of us. I think that terrifies many of us. The fact that somebody pure wants intimacy with impurity. We do not know what to do with that. Especially here in this city. Los Angeles contains this weird auks, uh, like mixture of, of, of people, right? What do you think? That we live amongst people who so badly want to be seen, but fearful to be known. We want somebody to be near to us, but we're not sure what to do when somebody wants to get close to us. Psychology would have many words associated with this anxiety and fear. Words like withdrawal isolation, presenting a false self. Now entertain this thought with me for a moment because if that's true and God wants to dwell with us and he wants to be near to us and most today don't know what to do with that, then what? What is the solution? What does a daily faith look like with a God who's pressing in, wants to be in our midst, wants to have intimacy? We don't know what to do with that. We struggle with that. What's the solution? For some, I'll pose to some different cases. For some, we do. Like we actually just do, 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 do. We dust check the house like our mother-in-law's visiting. We freak out, we clean, we sweep the floors. Other of us, spiritually, we, we justify our motivations. Other of us don't really know what to do with intimacy, don't know what to do with God, so we post pictures on Instagram saying hashtag blessed with our Bibles open. Like this is it, like I'm super spiritual, but I don't know what to do with intimacy. Mm peppermint mocha in a journal. Like, right? <laughs> but I will say this. Now, I'm just being stupid. There's nothing wrong with posting pictures of your Bible. But most of my conversations, 95% of my conversations, when I am talking to people about God wanting to be in your midst, God wanting to be in our midst, their gut response is always, oh, I know I need to do more. God wants to be with you. I know I need more spiritual disciplines. God is in your midst. I know, I need a stronger regimen. I could always be doing more spiritually. I hear that response 95% of the time. So then, and if this isn't true for all, but if it's true for most of us or some of us, when we do these type of things, this could be seen as or could be called spiritual manipulation with God. Because if I do this, then God will love me. If I'm doing, 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 cleaning, 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 sweeping, 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 If I prepare myself a certain way, I can maybe possibly trick God into answering me. I know I'm not lovable, but if I do a certain thing, God maybe will find me lovable or love me or be with me. It's do and do and do. Preparation, preparation, preparation. That is our response for most of us, including myself. That is our response for most of us. When God says, I want to be with you, I want to be in your midst, I want to be around you, we go, i got to clean the house. But here's what's crazy, because if we're honest, doesn't that sound like the tabernacle and all its rituals? The cleanliness required in the temple was a picture of the holiness required by God to be in his presence. There is literally a wash basin that you are supposed to clean yourself before you go in. There's like this optimist prime curtain to keep unclean people out. So that gut instinct we all feel to present ourselves as pure, what our conscience tells us about us and our guilt, the tabernacle only underscores that as true. The tabernacle theology goes, yep, it's filthy, disgusting, clean yourself. So then, what the poo-poo? Like, what are we supposed to do with any of that? I feel this way, and the tabernacle is just saying, good on you. Look at verse 8. Collective, if you remember the stranger, our author of Hebrew warned us many chapters ago, he, he said, I want to talk about harder things. I want to get to more challenging things. Not an exhortation, but an understanding. So that's why chapters 8 through 10 are going to be a bit crunchy, a bit chunky, and crispy, because what he's doing is this overlay. He's doing an overlay. Imagine two transparency sheets. Sheath. Anybody ever remember those in high school? With the transparency machine? And the teacher would write on it, oh man, I want to draw on it so bad. She'd write it and then she would like erase it and she would always miss one part. Remember that? And every kid in the class is like, it's killing me. Like that, the anxiety, just erase the whole thing. So imagine two transparency sheets on top of one another. That is what our author is doing. He is talking about two separate realities, two separate periods of time at the same moment. That is what these chapters are doing. Like Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar, he's like behind the bookcase looking in. We are all behind the bookcase looking in right now for chapters 8 through 10. And the stranger and his people live in a time of transition from old to new covenant where the coming of Christ, the old old way of relating to God has been replaced. They have entered into, what did he call it in verse 10? Time of reformation. That's what he calls this. There's great reform happening in their faith. This is a very unusual term. It's been translated as new order. It's been translated as new age. Don't get freaked out. I'm not passing out crystals or anything. But he's talking about we have entered a new age. And that word is found nowhere else in the New Testament. Our prolific author strikes again. But what did you notice that he just said? Because listen so closely. This is beautiful. Those here who don't know how or struggle to find an immersed level of intimacy with God, and find themselves in a spiritual busyness where we try to clean ourselves up or that spiritual manipulation, look at what he says regarding that kind of faith. Look what he says. Because the tabernacle has an issue. It only deals with external matters. Verse 9. The tabernacle cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. He's talking to people who feel like they have to get busy or do, do, do to be near to God. He's talking to them. He says the tabernacle, he's comparing the tabernacle to your busy state. That being you are the person in the first room. That was that revelatory moment. He goes, you by doing this are placing yourself in the outer room. Our author wants us to make a connection from the old tabernacle to assess our current spiritual conditions, our inner life. He's saying what room are you placing yourself in? Courtyard or outer room or inner room? Where are you? So how does this apply to our life? Those here who are only concerned with external cleanliness or presenting a false, spotless self are not any closer to God. They're further. They're further from the presence of God. It's like, again, living in front of the curtain. It's outer-room Christianity. It's a life of operating from guilt and shame. But this shows us God will not love you more or less by your actions. God will not accept you more or less by your motives. God will not give to you more or less by how much you read your Bibles, clean your house, say your prayers, attend church, give money to the church. God will not love you more or less. Essentially, there is not a freaking thing we can do. And I think that's precisely the point. And our conscience doesn't know what to do with this. Essentially, there's nothing we can do. And our Jiminy crickets go, uh, because they're so action-oriented, our consciences are. No wonder Pinocchio threw a hammer at it. They're action-oriented. So if you are here today and exhausted from thoughts and preparations of what it means to be in God's presence sick of waning or feeling guilty that you should be more spiritual this way or more churchy that way, the stranger looks you right in the eyes and says, no more. The stranger looks you right in the eye and says, shut your mouth. The stranger looks you right in the eye and says, verse 11, but when Christ appeared, oh, is there a better conjunctive transition in all of the book of Hebrews but when Christ appeared. Imagine if we applied that to every crappy situation in our life. But when Christ appeared. Well, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, that being all the promises of the new covenant, which we talked about last week, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation. Verse 12, he entered, oh, and I love this. It brings tears to my eyes. He entered once for all into the holy places. Their priests had to enter and enter and enter in time after time after time because the work was never done. Not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing a temporary redemption, an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ Who, through eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Oh, mama. I love the Bible. I love this. Are you guys ready for your brains to melt like noodles out your ears? Are you ready for this? This is so, so, like, unfathomable. You see what he's saying? Christ is the true tent. Christ is the true tabernacle. It says, not made of earthly hands. God, by the way of Jesus, tabernacled among us. Jesus is God with us, God accessible, God dwelling in in our midst. But even beyond that, and get ready, I love this. Jesus is the greater and more perfect lampstand, which shines the light of God upon us. Jesus said, I am the light of this world, John 8. Jesus, the greater and more perfect shoebread. He said, John 6, I am the bread of life, and those who feast on him shall never be hungry. Jesus, with the altar of incense, how the priest, the, excuse me, the priest would burn it, and they would bring it into the second room. This reminds us that Jesus is our great intercessor, that it is his work, his preparation, his ministry, his business, that he takes our needs to the Father as a pleasant aroma. The curtain, a symbol of his flesh, torn from top to bottom, so that we could run into the presence of God, Matthew chapter 27. Finally, Jesus was the scapegoat, the sacrifice on the altar in the courtyard, who carried away our sins forever as far as east is from the west, hidden in the depths of the sea. Mm. Do we have any idea what this means for our guilty conscience? Do we know what this means for our temptations towards spiritual busyness and preparations? It means those things are dead. And must remain that way. See, those things are dead. That sweeping, that dust check, those things are dead. Not thrown away, not given away, not forgotten, but lifeless. Those are to be buried six feet underground, he says. How? Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, no purify your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God? very graphically the stranger says our cure that we've been seeking all day is blood if you're here and not a christian or just visiting you're like gross it's gross it's heavy it's very heavy the blood of animals cleans the flesh the blood of christ cleanses the conscience that's the cleaning solution that's the crimson bleach Author C.S. Lewis Lewis calls this the the deeper magic. He calls this the deeper magic of the universe where he says that when an innocent willfully suffers for the guilty, then the curse upon the guilty is reversed. And not just guilt, guilt is reversed, but when forgiveness means we're released from negative consequences of guilt, but purity, purify. That means you are given, that means I'm given an exalted state of righteousness. I think... I think as a church, and and maybe this is my fault even as a Bible preacher, that we have, as Christians, forgotten the gospel is two sided. Meaning, I know many of us know the good news of Jesus deals with our negative consequences, guilt and condemnation and wrath. But I think so many of us easily forget to live in light of the positive side of the gospel that being that our entire position, our entire look has changed, that we are loved and accepted and pure. So, the next time we beat ourselves up, or we think we have to work harder for affection, or say things like, I get it, but I should be doing blank for a deeper intimacy. I should be doing this for a fuller nearness. I should be doing this for a more complete purity. It's like sticking an IV into a dead man. Christ has ushered and brought us in. It doesn't mean we stop praying and singing and reading. What all of this practically means is now is our preparation now, like those during the time of the tabernacle did preparation, our preparation now, our work now, is on the basis of complete gratitude that Christ has done every single preparation for us. Until we do that, any spiritual busyness that we do, the stranger says, is dead. If you think you have to present yourselves a certain way, that's dead. I put that to death so that you can serve the living God. We are now liberated from lifeless works to serve, to give freely with pure motives. Today, where are you at with this? This is majority of my conversations with our church. With our church. Are you arrested today by a guilty conscience? Do you feel hostage in the outer room? Does a feeling of past moral stains leave you in Despair. There is only one solution. So I'm gonna wrap it up with this. There's a small story of seventeenth century pastor named Charles Simeon, and he was talking about a moment, he goes, I remembered my conversion. And he goes, It happened as I read the book of Hebrews. He goes, I was reading about a high priest, and I was reading about the blood, and I was reading about the tabernacle, and I was reading about the sacrifice. And he was thinking, How is all this symbolism of transfer of guilt from the people to the offering. And then it says, the thought came to his mind, said Simeon, what may I transfer all of my guilt to? How do I transfer my guilt to like they did? You see this he's asking, what am I supposed to do with a guilty conscience, a defiled spirit, a wayward heart, a stained soul? He went on to say, has God provided an offering for me that I might lay my sins on his head? Then God willing." I will not bear them on my soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. If this message is for you, then I would say not a minute longer, just as Charles Simeon said, not a freaking minute longer. Today, will you let us pray for you so that these things do not sit on your soul for a minute longer? Would we pray for anything in your life that may be burdensome? See, what if simply, if none of everything you guys say is peachy roses pie, fine, what if our prayer request to the people on the sides or on that side of the wall wearing the yellow lanyards, what if our prayer request was just, I want to encounter God at a deeper level of intimacy, not on my own works, but knowing it's off of his? What if we all took that same prayer to a prayer team or somebody? How would that change this church? our prayer team is so important to our gatherings. And if we can start going to there what that means is if we start allowing that more and more that means we are allowing a level of transparency, vulnerability and a spiritual openness that this church has been longing for. Today I encourage you go receive prayer. Go and receive prayer. And then lastly we have communion here in the front. Double stack cuffs on my right and my left. It's there for you when you come on and come up at your own readiness. But one of my favorite aspects of communion is this. When you come to receive these symbolic elements, it's not you entering the courtyard. It's not you entering the outer room. It's you entering the most holy of holies. Why? Because when you come up and take this, you are proclaiming to everybody here, I accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. So every week when we come here and we take communion together we pray together we sit under God's word together and we're here instead of the World Cup or whatever else it is, What that means every single week is we are turning the world on top of its heads, Not by merit, but by grace. Not our preparations, but his. Not dead works, but free to serve. That's what we are saying every single week when we make this time a priority. We make communion a priority. We make God's word a priority. So what is it in your life today that needs to be turned upside down on its head? Let's find it in the time of response. Let's pray.